welcome to the Enthusiasts Club podcast. I'm R.J. White. Now, what is the Enthusiasts Club? Well, if there's something, anything that excites you, you remember without even knowing it. It can be a chunk of pop culture, a place, a hobby, a point in history, a character, an activity, a piece of music, a shoe, whatever. It can be obscure, it can be popular, it can be personal. Something where if if someone happened to ask you about it at a party, you might realize in the drive home that maybe you went on a little too long about it. Well, this podcast is the place for that. So, on each episode, I'll be talking to a member of the Enthusiasts Club to learn more about the things that get them excited. First up is Ramsey S., a writer and teacher from our Brooklyn, New York chapter. Ramsey's enthusiastic about Merrily We Roll Along, an early 80s Stephen Sondheim work that didn't exactly do very well its first time around. What is Merrily We Roll Along? Basically, it's a musical that was originally staged in 1981 and is based on a much older play from the 30s um, that it's kind of thought of as like a Hal Prince, Stephen Sondheim show. The book is was written by George Firth, who did a few other Sondheim shows. But it's basically the last collaboration between these sort of two titans of Broadway, Sondheim and Prince. Yeah, right. You think about those two. They, they did so many, and even me, I'm, I'm not a huge uh, student of uh, musical theater or Broadway musicals, but even that, those two names... Uh, you put those together, that's a thing. And this is a show that sort of kind of ended that partnership in a weird way. And the, the subject matter is kind of ironic, too, because it's about like these artists working together and then just drifting apart. But there's all kinds of other wrinkles to it that kind of uh, precipitated its downfall. The whole story is told backwards. Uh, so you start with this sad, lonely man and then it ends hopefully, but then you remember, oh, wait, that's the past. We saw this sad, lonely man at the beginning. So it kind of shoots itself in the foot in that way. Well, how, how did you first come across this, this, this show? Like, did you, had you read about it? Had you just heard someone else talking about it? How did you first find it? Uh, my introduction to the show was actually the same way I was introduced to Sondheim. Uh, there was a HBO documentary called uh, Six by Sondheim, where it was kind of telling his life story through six different songs. Um, and there's this one song in there called Opening Doors, which is from Merrily, which is from the second act of the play, where it's these three friends uh, talking about the, the job of writing and trying to, trying to open these doors, trying to break in and getting fired and hitting all these set, setbacks just one after another. Uh, and as somebody who does writing on their own, it, it, I just, even though it was something that was happening in the sixties and I'm, I'm never going to write for a uh, playboy or red book, like in the song, I, I found it really inspiring and just like, it was a really beautiful depiction of what it was like. Just trying to get your foot in the door. And you said that, it would, that this documentary was also your kind of um, introduction to Sondheim. Had you not heard much of his stuff before this, before seeing that? I, I knew the name, and I had been forced to watch West Side Story after reading Romeo and Juliet in ninth grade. 
Uh, but I think besides Krusty the Clown singing Send in the Clowns, I think I think that was about it. Uh, I, I knew that there was a musical about Sweeney Todd, uh, that sort of thing, but never really sat down to watch anything else. Uh, just kind of knew that, oh, that's a name of a thing smart people like Stephen Sondheim. It was, it was through that documentary that I actually uh, – that was the first one that I dug out uh, – or actually Spotify. I went right to the, the cast recording and dug in from there. The songs were just beautiful, but it was the lyrics that really jumped out to me as being um, so kind of like deceptively simple where there's nothing – it's not like Gilbert and Sullivan where there's these crazy patter songs or fancy schmancy rhymes or anything, but – each of these songs is telling a story so clearly uh, and communicating this emotion so simply, but there's just a real, you can sense the craft to it, that there's a, a attention to detail there that I really can't say that I felt outside of this work. And as you read up more on this show um, and it, its history, what was your reaction when you found out how it ultimately kind of ended up? It's It was kind of interesting to learn so it was kind of a notable Broadway flop at the time. Uh, and that was particularly interesting because I had sort of the, uh, being in the future, I knew that it was redone several times. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yes. <laughs> so th the fact that I knew that it kind of like was seen as something better, uh, it then allowed me to see. So like the first production, uh, they cast it with teenagers, uh, to kind of, they wanted to show that, innocence at the end of the play by having these kids play adults and then by the end they're they're showing their true selves but ultimately they found that nobody bought these kids as adults it just didn't work and then my favorite thing that goes wrong in the first production is uh they were finding that the audience wasn't able to figure out like oh they lost track of which character was which character uh so like during previews hell prince just uh, get rid of the costumes uh, and gave them all T-shirts with those kind of 70s iron-on letters <laughs> that explained that character's connection to the main character, Frank Shepard. So it said, like, ex-wife, uh, best friend, uh, just on these plain color T-shirts. That is such an odd choice because it kind of could read as a sort of giving up or could also read as, like, that's, a, that's an amazing artistic choice to do that. So I, how do you fall on that? I, I really go back and forth on it. Um, I think because Prince in particular is known for really kind of breaking out of the conventions of Broadway and this being a show made up of kids, uh, I kind of see it more as like, I'm going to try something completely different that fits with what we're doing here. But the, Knowing that this is ultimately their last collaboration, I I do wonder how much of it was like. Well, I I'm, I'm getting out of here after this one, so let's see if this takes. So I, I first thought of doing this podcast about like four years ago and asked you about it, and this was one of the topics you wanted to talk about. And I, I looked into it like, oh yeah, okay, this is a I think in the time since then, uh, there's been a documentary, there's been multiple revivals. It, it, it's almost like people have kind of come back around to it in some odd way, especially the documentary. I don't know if you want to talk about that a bit. I, I actually watched it a couple weeks ago, and that was really interesting just to see that whole process from the people who were sort of uh, touched by it, in some cases didn't get 
past it entirely. In some cases, it kind of helped in a weird way. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Uh, but um, was Lonnie Price, uh, who played one of the leads in it, uh, directed this this really just kind of fascinating uh, picture of this thing going on that everybody thought it was going to be a big hit because it's, he said, <laughs> Sondheim Prince. Right. How yeah. Could you go and wrong? then, uh, no. Yeah. It, it's kind of a beautiful documentary where the subject matter mirrors the subject so much, or well, the what actually happened to these actors mirrors the play where the first half of the documentary is just telling the story of getting the cast together, making this thing, and then it eventually flops. And then the second half is is Lonnie reaching back out to the original cast, showing you where everybody ended up. And like you said, for some people, this was just a first step. Uh, Jason Alexander was in the original cast. And so they they made it out. They did fine. Uh, and then some people just moved on to other things, completely other avenues. Uh, so you get this sort of, just like this sort of backward storytelling that the play has, or the musical has, that you get to see these people reflecting backwards. And uh, ultimately, Lonnie finds this footage of him as a teenager talking about like how I could die tomorrow and this will be, I'll be fine because this is the greatest thing. And seeing himself as this idealistic kid uh, and where he is now and having to kind of reconcile those two things is just like a perfect bookend to the story. Well, and also something I found interesting in it, too, was that um, even though this didn't go very well, Stephen Sondheim seems to have a very, very soft spot for this. He still seems like he loves it. I mean, I, anybody who writes something is still going to love part of it. But this one, it seems like he still has some sort of like some sort of attachment to it. Yeah, Hal Prince died about a week ago or so. And so I've been reading a lot about their partnership. And Stephen has been saying for quite some time that like the most fun, even though it was their, their last work, the most fun they had was the kind of scramble to make try and make the show work in those sort of previews. Uh, he comp- always compares it in the interviews to uh, the Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland movies about putting on a show. Because they had to like throw out half, like throw out songs uh, during the previews in front of on its feet, uh, doing all these crazy edits and trying to make this show go. Uh, so I, I think deep down it's one of his favorite. Um, I, I was very fortunate, and I got to see Sondheim actually perform a song recently, uh, which I don't think he has ever done publicly outside of like backers auditions. Wow, and the. The song he chose to play was was from this. Oh wow! Uh, yeah. Are are you like a in general a large fan of musical theater or no? I would say I'm kind of in the middle. I gravitate more towards the stuff that'll. It's either got to be really stupid, like a Spider-Man turn off the dark, or something that is really kind of sad and gloomy and sound timey, I guess, for lack of a better term. Because I I've never been. Uh, myself a huge fan of musicals and also growing up to if i saw some sort of musical theater it was something like you'd see some broad 1940s film or something like that. you see like um oklahoma or something like that and I always say, oh you stop the scene actually sing a song whatever and the last few years i've kind of come around to seeing or listening to more of this sort of thing like the sondheim material where it's oh it actually does carry on the story, there's actually something, like, the song actually has something to do with uh, the characterization and carrying the plot forward and things like that. And I, I'm wondering, why have you kind of gravitated towards him more than some of the other kind of broader stuff? 
I think one of the lucky breaks as I was getting into Sondheim after that documentary and after listening to a few of the cast recordings was uh, it was just after he had released this two volume set of his lyrics, this, these giant hardcover books uh, that I managed to get used pretty cheap. Um, and I'm a real sucker for people talking about their, their process. Uh, and, uh, he has this thing in, in his introduction to the first book where he lays out basically his three rules for writing. They were really easy. It's just less is more, which makes sense. Content dictates form. Uh, and then God is in the details and they're just kind of simple, but they can, you can interpret those in so many different ways. And that that really spoke to me, just having this sort of like motto to your writing. And then I got super dorky and wrote him a letter after I read Wait, that. what? Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, really? Yep. Uh, it was specifically, uh, I basically said like, hey, I, I saw this documentary and particularly that song, Opening Doors, really spoke to me. And now, now I'm getting to explore your work. And uh, do you want me to read it to you? I actually have it here. Oh, I, yes, please. It says, Dear Ramsey S., thank you for the complimentary letter. I'm truly glad that the song had such a salubrious effect on you and that it led you to explore my work further. Keep applying my three principles and you can't go wrong. You may not write a smash hit, but you can't go wrong. Uh, and it's on his old typewriter when he signed it at the end. Oh, my gosh. That's wonderful. Wow. It was very uh, – and it was like a week after I sent it, which is, was crazy. He was just waiting for letters. I mean, were you expecting it all to hear back from him? or I Honestly, my thinking was – I, I had a shot more than like the time I wrote to Carrie Fisher when I was in high school, just because he's, yeah, <laughs> he's, he's, he's an older guy. He's got, he's used to correspondence of this type. And, but like, I did also didn't, I wasn't really hoping, but there we were. Have you ever been able to see like a performance revival of this, this show or now? I haven't actually seen it on stage in front of me. The, there was a West End version in the 2010s, I want to say 2014 maybe, that was streamed live like a Fathom event type of thing. Uh, so kind of, but not officially, officially. You, I think uh, you and your wife, you go see a lot of uh, live theater, right? Yeah, as of late, we, we have been. How does that swing towards uh, musicals versus dramatic productions, that sort of thing? I mean, since you've kind of... Uh, opened up to a lot more of this have you been like oh sure i'll try that why not yeah actually uh so my wife is a little less on the musical train than i am but we so we do see a fair amount of plays uh they tend to be irish and sad uh are the ones that we gravitate towards not exclusively we also saw the harry potter play so there's one exception that breaks the rule but actually, you mentioned Oklahoma. She is cuckoo crazy for that Oklahoma revival that is happening right now. I've heard, I've heard about that. I've heard. What, what is it about it that's grabbing people so much? So we saw it in Brooklyn where it first started, and then it moved over to Broadway. But I, I'm oh, that's why it's hip. That's why. It's yeah. It's a uh, it's an underground Oklahoma. So I, I think it's pretty close to what they ended up where where it is now. But um, it's done in sort of this. In the round, basically, they converted the entire theater to be these newly built wooden planks. So it looks like you're sitting in a barn. The orchestra is just in the middle of the stage. It's a small sort of it's a steel pedal, banjo, fiddle. So it's like it could be a, just a regular old hootenanny orchestra. And it's done in a way where the, the book, the, the lyrics, nothing is changed. But 
the tone is shifted in a lot of ways. They'll put like kind of dark undercurrents to songs or the uh, uh, what's the the evil guy's name? J- Judd Judd. He is basically played as this sociopath who is trying to force himself on the the female lead. Uh, the lithium induced ballet that happens is this really crazy intense dance sequence that opens act two uh and it's kind of scary at times but really masterfully done and they incorporate like a little bit of racial tension by casting the sheriff as an african-american man it's subtle in the changes but it really does a lot with the material that you wouldn't think you could do just by the way it's staged it's it's really impressive how they managed to pull that off well it kind of it puts in mind also um about merrily we roll along about how sometimes things they need the time uh to come back around to people for people to rethink them uh for people to maybe appreciate them in a different manner and and why do you think that has sort of happened with uh merrily we roll along because it was before the documentary people were still doing this people were still uh, putting the show up again and again and again and why do you think uh, they've done that or people connect with it when it was such a seemed as such a like, kind of a a bit of a failure the first time it came out I, I think part of it might be the Sondheim name uh, his latest play uh, hopefully not his last but his latest one is called Roadshow uh, which was it went through three completely different versions and closed even quicker than Merrily um, but even that still still gets mounted occasionally. So like I think part of it might just be carrying on that name to some degree. But I do know with the with the second version uh, in I think it was 84, maybe 85 that James Lapine directed, it was kind of a way to correct a lot of the issues. They cast adults this time. They have costumes for real. Um, but they also, they had Steven actually write some new songs for it to kind of change the direction a bit. And the changes I, I feel personally actually do improve the show quite a bit. They're, they're small changes, but basically it, it grounds you in the, the time travel aspect of it. It makes it a lot clearer what's happening there. And it makes the lead character a little bit more sympathetic right off the bat. So you don't instantly hate him and it makes it a lot harder. It, the first version, it makes it a lot harder to, want to see him succeed when you know he's going to betray his friends from the go from the get-go rather yeah, from from what little i've heard of uh sondheim stuff and i've, I've seen seen sweeney todd the, the, the film uh, i listened to company after the co-op thing came out and bits and pieces here and there this just sounded more to me like a kind of old-fashioned old-timey musical than a lot of his other stuff too like there's some songs that sounded kind of like um Mickey and Judy, we're putting on a show, kids, kind of thing. Like, there's a bunch of bits of that that sounded like that, which I thought was really kind of strange and interesting, but also kind of fun. He he uh, claims that that was very intentional, that he was trying to basically write like he would have written during that time, where he put himself back in that um, and did a bunch of 32-bar songs, even though he had kind of evolved past that, since that's what kind of the the content dictated in that particular case. There's one musical that he wrote both the the music and lyrics for before West Side Story that was never produced until uh, I think '98. It eventually was done, where um, the the producer died, and so it just never made it to the stage. And uh, it, it's you can definitely hear 
echoes of that score in Merrily, um, even though it was never out at that point. He, he was definitely channeling that first production of his. And have you ever uh, read the original Moss and Hart play it's based on? You know what? I haven't. I've read a few summaries and a few negative reviews from the time that are actually kind of funny. But I haven't read the full thing, no. Do you know if it did well back then, like the original play? Or if this is some very obscure thing that they plucked out of history to make another very obscure thing? I I was looking that up a little bit earlier today, actually, in preparation to talk to you. It seems as though it did okay, but it wasn't. it's never been revived since 1934. And uh, Herman Mankiewicz, uh, who wrote the script for Citizen Kane with Orson Welles, had like a review. I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like, so this guy is super successful. He's written a hit play uh, and he's with this blonde bombshell and I'm supposed to care. (laughs) The whole point of this play is uh, how did this poor son of a bitch get here? Like, yeah, that's a pretty good point that we're just watching this guy's rise to the top. So, so why do you think it was this play that they decided to, adapt like this or that that Sondheim decided to adapt like this was it like a love you think of old theater or was it a thing maybe that like you brought up earlier that oh well it's kind of not dissimilar from what's going on with his and hell Prince's careers at the time I think it because it also reflects his his growth as an artist as well he Sondheim likes to point out that or he likes to say that there's a little bit of him in all of the characters, but he's only written a couple songs that could be seen as truly autobiographical. Um, there's one from Sunday in the park with George. And then he cites opening doors as one where, uh, the two writer characters are pitching their song to, um, the big shot Broadway guy. And, he basically tells him like, oh, there's there's not a tune you can hum in here, which is basically what they told him about his lyrics to West Side Story. Uh, so I think a big part like he came up at the same time that these characters are, are coming up. And I think how Prince was probably attracted to the, the backwards nature of the play, the, the memento element of it, just sort of like he, he loves breaking the conventions of theater getting to do these sort of epic scale things, that that was probably something that spoke to him as well. Well, can you peg uh, one thing that you think just made it not work with audiences at the time? I would have to probably say, I think for the audiences at the time, it was probably the casting, that it was probably having a bunch of teenagers trying to play adults, turned a lot of people off and they they say that like that was kind of their intention that they wanted it to seem like like you that you would still see these kids through the characters uh i don't know how much of that is them trying to say that after the fact but i i think that was probably the one of the main things that turned people off like why am i paying broadway prices to see these kids on stage Stephen mentions like in one of these books I've read where it's like if if I'd done this maybe off Broadway, it would have been okay, but he wouldn't have been able to mount a show at that point on off Broadway because it just would have people would have said, Why aren't you on Broadway? You're Stephen Sondheim. Well, how also how much of that do you think factored into it too? That it was these two guys doing the show and they'd had a whole string of really interesting uh things that did well. I mean, how much do you think of 
that kind of factored into a bit of a backlash sort of situation. Yeah, there's there's no doubt that everybody was waiting for some kind of crack to happen in there. Just to, like you've seen these guys do uh, company Sweeney Todd Pacific overtures hit after hit after hit together. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they were there was they were waiting for blood in the water. Yeah, they were waiting for uh, iron on T-shirts. <laughs> yes, exactly. I've got my headline. So this show, if you were to recommend, what, what what's what's the one thing you would do to convince someone to to listen to the soundtrack to go see a production of this? What what's one thing you would tell someone? Hey, you've you've got to see this. You may have heard it's not the best thing in the world, but this is why you should go and see it. This is why you should listen to the music. I think I would probably play them one of two songs. I would either play them the one that got me opening doors or the closing track our time which is this sort of really beautiful uh song where these three friends are just looking up at the sky uh they mentioned sputnik is up there somewhere so kind of marking the time uh and just talking about like how this is this is their time they're gonna burst out of this and they're really gonna make it uh and you can call it folly you can call it just blind hopefulness but i think either way it's just a beautiful song that's that really speaks to this this story they have no idea what's going to come next even though we all do i i think i think that's what i would play is is one of those two is this your favorite uh show of his or just kind of more of a sentimental favorite because it's kind of an underdog i have three big ones that i kind of go back and forth between I really love Merrily. Sunday in the Park with George is another great one about creating art and the difficulties and the loneliness at times of it. Um, and then I, I really like Company as well, um, which is one that I relate a little less to, but I think it's kind of more of a weird historical document of the 1970s uh, where it's sort of a man trying to sort out different relationships. Actually, it's just been redone in London with a uh, woman in the lead, too. So it still kind of works that way. So I shouldn't uh, tie it directly to the 70s. But those are the, the big three. But I think I think Marilou is my favorite for both the sentimental reasons and just uh, I think it's a really good show on top of everything else. So how long ago was it that you saw this uh, documentary um, on HBO? Uh my letter is dated 2015, so I think it, it would have been, yeah, October-ish of 2015, I want to say. Uh, I have a <laughs> – I don't know if this will help uh, or if this is just going to be a quick diversion, but uh, I wrote a second letter to him as well where I was trying to – basically I was asking him a question about that content, content dictates form rule of his where I was basically trying to say – so like, for example, with Hamilton – does that mean that because the content is sort of this uh, contentious fight between political parties, that hip hop is the appropriate form, or does that mean that it should have been like drum and fife music because it's back in the 1700s? And he wrote this kind of like Socratic response, saying like, following the logic of your question, doesn't that mean that the Pacific overtures should have been written in the non-pentatonic scale of Japanese music, et cetera, et cetera? kind of schooling me, but like kind of like a nice teacher 
Sure, but also yeah. showing off a little bit. Kind a little of. bit, a little bit. Yeah, but that's fine. He's earned it. <laughs> he has absolutely earned it. There was a brief moment when I opened that envelope of like, whoa, I made Sondheim mad. But then it was like, you know what? No, that he is he is teaching me from his vast body of knowledge. Uh, this is this is just a student to teacher relationship here, I guess. So can you remember anything um, in recent memory where someone who, who has been around that long or has that, that deep of a body of work and you suddenly discover it and all of a sudden something just clicks and you just start trying to find out everything you can about it. Have you, has that happened to you much before or no? Yes. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. I, I tend, when I connect, I tend to just dig in as much as I can as quickly as I can. The first name that comes to mind is, is Wodehouse reading my first Jeeves and Wooster book and then just pouring over a ton of those as quickly as I could get through them. I'm sure there's a million examples. Uh, oh, Ernie Kovacs is one recently where one, as soon as I discovered him, I just got it every DVD, every YouTube clip I could find. And, and what was it with the Sondheim, his work? Yeah. What, what was it exactly about this that just grabbed you right away? I, I think the documentary, showing his story told through these songs and getting to hear his sort of not necessarily reflection on the songs, but just sort of talking about what they meant to him at the time and not how they shaped his life, but, or how they were inspired by his life, but more just where he was when he was doing it, having that clear picture into an artist's sort of production was really cool to me and wanting to be able like enjoying the work enough that I wanted to then chase that tale as deep as I could go and find out like, how, how do you do this? How, how do you write this way? I, I am not a lyric writer. I've never really aspired to do that except in the occasional jokey song I've put together, but it's such a, it's, it's like a little puzzle and hearing somebody have opinions about uh, what makes a good rhyme and a bad rhyme was so interesting to me as a as a type of writing that I've never approached, but uh, just a, a river that ran so deep that I never would have seen all those little details to it. If you're interested in seeing either of the documentaries we mentioned, Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened is available on Netflix, and Six by Sondheim is available for viewing over on HBO Go. A bit of an odd postscript, a couple of weeks after we recorded this, it was announced that Richard Linklater is making a film version of Merrily We Roll Along, but you'll have to wait a bit to see it. He's filming it with the same cast over a period of 20 years. Hopefully he'll have the iron-on t-shirt problem worked out uh, by the time he gets around to doing it. Um, I want to thank Ramsey S. for being on the podcast. He has quite a few projects going on, uh, newsletters, uh, columns, podcasts, and if you want to find out all about them, head on over to RamseyS.com, R-A-M-S-E-Y-E-S-S.com. Uh, if you like what you've heard here, please subscribe to the Enthusiasts Club podcast on your favorite podcast app or by visiting enthusiastsclub.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Enthusiasts Club. Thank you for listening.